Good morning, everyone. You can open the Bible to Psalm 24. We'll be there in a little bit. This world that we live in, it has been a turmoil. And I thought about it, and I suppose you have too, you know, just thinking about the changes since the new year began and how dramatic and sudden uh, there have been great changes in our nation and world, uh, protests and riots and anarchy and this uh, COVID virus and a strained economy. Besides our personal uh, trials and stresses and disappointments and grief, all struggles that affect us and uh, can affect us in body, soul, and spirit. But it's been that way, ebbs and flows of uh, bad times and better times since the beginning of the world. Though I do believe that the scripture tells us that uh, as we get closer to the end, that we can expect more bad times. But for, uh, for somebody who knows God, <coughs> and we've been singing songs of worship to God, because I was looking at this uh, message this morning, the words of the song came to me, there is a place of quiet rest near to the heart of God, a place where sin cannot molest near to the heart of God. There is a place of comfort sweet near to the heart of God, a place where we are Savior meet near to the heart of God. There is a place of full relief near to the heart of God, a place where all is joy and peace near to the heart of God. O oh, Jesus, blessed Redeemer, sent from the heart of God, hold us to wait before Thee near to the heart of God. And that's always been true, too. Think of Abraham. Abram, he was in Ur of the Chaldees, an idolatrous uh, society. Daniel in Babylon, think of him kneeling by the window three times a day uh, under a great duress threat of uh, being killed. Paul and Silas in prison in Philippi's prison. And I think all of these people and many, many, many more throughout the scriptures have found a place of quiet rest. And what I want to notice here, Psalm 24, we start out there, the earth is the Lord, I'm reading from New King James, and all its fullness, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the waters. And here we notice in the first uh, in the first verse there he divides the creation 
between the earth and the inhabitants of the earth, those who dwell therein. And then he addresses the question, who of earth's inhabitants can come into the presence of the Creator, into the presence of God, into the place of quiet rest? And in verse 3, who may ascend into the hill of the Lord, or who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to an idol, nor sworn deceitfully, he shall receive blessings from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. This is Jacob, the generation of those who seek him, who seek your faith. So the answer that we're given here uh, to is that those who approach God are those who have a clean heart. They're clean and pure before Him. They're not idolaters. They're people of integrity. These people may come into the presence of God and will be blessed there. They will find blessing there. Uh, the New English translation says, Such purity characterizes, this is for verse 6, Such purity characterizes the people who seek his favor, Jacob's descendants, who pray to him, pray to God. Steal. And the English standard version says, such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Uh, there are a number of manuscripts who have the God of Jacob included in the, uh, in, in the verse. So, there are people who are, who are seeking his face who are clean and people of integrity, they're not idolaters, not distracted with idolatry, the things of the earth that people pay a lot of attention to. And then follows, uh, this follows or is followed by a song of praise, lift up your heads, O you gates, and be lifted up, you everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is the King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O you gates, lift up, you everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is the King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. We want to think about worshiping the King of glory here this morning and looking at a couple of uh, passages, verse in one case. And not just the thought of worship as in we now have met to worship thee and we come to church together and we sing and we listen to, uh, and we sing together and we listen to a message and have some school, maybe eventually, things like that. You know, church, 
church is important, but we want to think of uh, more than worshiping together uh, and more than our quiet times, devotional times of worship. But to think of a life, all of life, lived in devotion to God. And what does this worship consist of that makes it acceptable to God? And uh, one verse that I want us to notice is in the middle of uh, the faith chapter, Hebrews 11. So if you want to turn there, uh, Hebrews 11 and verse 6. And we could, uh, you know, look at many examples there given in Hebrews 11, and maybe we'll talk about a couple of them, but let's notice what this verse says. But without faith, it is impossible to please him, to please God. For he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is the rewarder of those who diligently seek him. So we just read about who may ascend uh, into the hill of the Lord, or who may stand in his holy place. It says it a little differently. For he who comes to God needs to have faith. Without faith, without faith, it is impossible to please God. For he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is the rewarder of those who diligently seek him. So this is a very key. Uh, Part of worshiping God in an acceptable way. And what does that mean? It means that to come to into God's presence, to be accepted and pleasing to Him, that there are certain requirements. And one is faith. It starts out with faith, but without faith. And He says what we are to believe, what we need to believe, that God is real and that he rewards the diligent seekers. And what I think that is telling us is that this God is real and he is engaged. Uh, I, I had uh, often uh, made this point one, point two, and we need to have both. But I'm, I'm seeing how it could be one, because it is not only the existence of a God that is real and does things like design that shows intelligent design in the way the earth is created, but then lets it kind of uh, roll along on its own, a thoughtful but distant creator. And it's not just believing and trembling like the demons do who know that God is real and that they are uh, doomed to judgment. But it is a real God of a certain character. Not just believing in God, but a God uh, of love, of a character of love who cares about his creation, who gave his only begotten Son. 
that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. We believe in a real God of love. The seekers find him. The seekers worship him. The seekers are rewarded by him because he is engaged. He loves them. We believe in a God, a real God of love. And genuine love acts. And I'd like to read a passage from Romans 8. Turn with me there. Uh, the last part of the chapter is very familiar to us. But I just want to be impressed with how great this God's love is. And how active this God's love is. We'll begin in verse 31 of Romans 8. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. That's how the, how the people can be pure in Psalm 24. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died, and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sore, or COVID-19, or riot, as it is written, for your sake, we are killed all day long, we are counted as peaceful as water. Yet in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Now that is not uh, a distant God. That is a God who is engaged with his children. That is the heavenly Father. That is the good shepherd. That is the personal redeemer, savior, and comforter. God is the greatest reward. There's another aspect uh, to God being the rewarder that we should note. He is a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. And that is, uh, is, and He is the rewarder, is a different word than the is in believe that He is. We'll get hung up on isn't here. Let's be careful. But this uh, this is, and he is the rewarder, has the sense of eventually, in other words, 
that not all the blessings and all the rewards come instantly when we work, when we keep. There are blessings that come right away. But there's a promise of more and better things uh, to come. And, uh, and Hebrews 11 is filled with that. They sought for a continuing thing, for a future thing, uh, something even beyond their lifetime. And for many of the people, for many believers, and he mentions those, some of those in uh, Hebrews 11, their lives ended with what looked like humiliating and crushing defeat to uh, the onlookers. But that was not so. The battle was not won and lost there. Though their enemies didn't realize it, after they had stormed them asunder and burned them at the stake and tossed their, their corpses aside, their enemies didn't realize that the victims were glorious in victory already. They were already over there in God's presence on the winning side. There, there is a future, a guaranteed future hope that's certain. First Peter 1 Peter 1.4 An inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that does not fade away reserved in heaven for you. Uh, last evening, about 6 o'clock, uh, a little before 6, Rafael Segura, a uh, Guatemalan national pastor, uh, went to his reward. He'd been sick, hadn't been doing well. He was a dear brother. Delvin would have known him very well. Jeff would have known him and Lowell, others. And uh, he was a policeman at one time. I think he was in the Army. And it seems to me like he... Uh, Race motorcycles at one time before he was converted. But, um, yeah, it makes me sad to think of him being gone. Uh, his wife had died a few years before, and I know he was lonely the last time I met him, he was, which has been a few years. He was uh, quite sad and grieving yet over her gone. But uh, he's gone to his reward. And then uh, this says that he, we also need to especially note this, that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. And that's a pretty strong expression. I believe there are blessings for anyone who takes a step toward God, a sincere step toward God, but this says, especially emphasizes the diligent seeker a rewarder of them that diligently seek them. And the same word is used in Hebrews 12, where it describes Esau after he was gift, if you will, of his blessing. And it said that, uh, you know, he pleaded with uh, his father, with Isaac, and he found no place for repentance. Though he fought it diligently with tears, he begged his dad 
instead want to please. With tears, cries, couldn't you bless me? Won't you bless me? But there was no change uh, on Isaac's part. Isaac couldn't change what he had done in blessing Jacob instead of Esau. But there's a serious earnestness about this seeking for God that gets a rich reward, that is richly rewarded. Half-hearted, lazy seeking, just going through the motions, doesn't find so much blessing. And it knows little of the greatness and grandeur and presence of God. The Laodiceans were sort of that kind of seeker, sort of half-hearted, lukewarm. How much did they really want of God? Not, not a whole lot. They gathered together. They got together and had church, and they worshipped. They went through the forms of worship. They talked about God. They read scriptures. They told Bible stories. But they were distracted, we know, uh, with many earthly things. And were quite satisfied, it seemed like, with the earthly things. And I'm pretty sure if uh, Laodicea had erupted in riot and mayhem and some terrible epidemic had gone racing through, that they would have been far more distressed about all this and more unsettled and frantic than the Christians say in Berea or the Christians in Central Market who uh, really impressed us with their testimonies and their desire and their love for God and their worship to God Jesus said, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. So that, that's the first thing, the first verse that we've given some thought to, but without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. The second scripture I want us to look at is John 4. And that's from the account of Jesus and the woman uh, at the well. Jesus and his disciples were headed from, Ju- from Judea to Galilee through Samaria. And when they got to Sychar, uh, Jesus, weary from the journey, sat by Jacob's well and rested while the disciples went into town by some food. And we know the story. We know how that woman came. A Samaritan woman came to draw water at the well, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. 
And it startled the woman because it was so unexpected it was not. What she was expecting, she knew this was a Jewish man sitting there at the well. And in their conversation, when the woman realized that uh, Jesus knew her life and her sin and her need, what she really needed, she said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worked on, worshiped on this mountain, in verse 20. And you do say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in and truth. Now let's notice first that the Father is seeking such to worship Him. Those who worship Him in spirit and in truth. The Father is seeking. The Father is seeking speakers. Isn't that what we saw? He is the rewarder of those that diligently seek Him. And He is seeking. So, we're told that Draw nigh to God, and He will draw nigh to you. And the Scripture teaches us that God is seeking us. And God is seeking us before we're even seeking Him. And this is the Father. And just to call God Father, our Father, which art in heaven, is to be praying in faith to a God who, who loves us and is engaged with us and caring about us and for us. But he says that we must worship Him in spirit and truth. And the spirit, our spirit, is the point and the means of contact and communion, the medium of communication with God for one. God is spirit, and we consist of body, soul, and spirit, and it's through the spirit that we have spiritual communion with God. He is telling us that's how we connect. So, Brother David programs uh, radios, and there's a certain category of frequency that police and fire department rescue used, and that's how they communicate. That's their, the slice of the radio spectrum that they communicate over, back and forth. And it's through our spirit, a spiritual uh, connection, point of connection to God. We don't just wave our hands 
at God or do sign language or something like that when we're in communion with God. It's communion through our spirit. But the spirit is also an attitude of worship, of reverence, of adoration, of love and devotion, of surrender to God. And so the point he was making to this American lady is that it's not whether you worship at Mount Gerizim, where the Samaritans worship, or at the temple in Jerusalem, where the type from the Old Testament pointed forward to Christ, the living water, and also where there was a lot of form and little power. But it's the heart of the worshiper, the temple of the heart where this worship that is acceptable to God springs forth. Worship to the Father in spirit and truth. And the truth is simply put, and some, some translations will say the reality. What's real, what's right. Above the confusion and the ignorance, above all that's opposed to God and to God's truth, all the fault, all the darkness of deception, the sin and bondage and clouds of the devil's propaganda. Second Peter one nineteen talks about the day star shining in our hearts. Isaiah 60, verses 1 and 2, has, has this beautiful thought. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord is risen upon you. For behold, the darkness shall cover the earth, and deep darkness the people. But the Lord will arise over you, and His glory will be seen upon you. And the great truth, the great reality of that life is that God is real. And God loves us. God loves mankind. And He is engaged in our lives. He is the rewarder of those who diligently seek Him and His truth. And we can have a spiritual connection to our Father to the reality of a God who loves us and is involved in our redemption and our lives here on the earth. And we saw, we've seen that God is love and God's love moves into action to be our Father and Redeemer. And we love Him because He first loved us. And true worship moves us to action too, to right choices and decisions and to right living. And that's the life that we live. So I thought about Daniel's friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and how they one time found themselves in a great field. I wonder how large that field was. Out on the plain with thousands of other people gazing at us tall image. I forget how tall that thing was. And they were ordered to, when the band played, 
they were to bow to this image. And these three Hebrew men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, said no. They were worshippers of the true God. They would never bow to the image. And uh, you think about those thousands of people gripped by fear of Nebuchadnezzar, what would happen to them if they didn't bow down, and the peer pressure of all the people around him and doing what everybody else is doing. How many of them really believed that that image was a God deserving worship? Maybe some of them did. That could very well be. But I don't think many of them thought to themselves, this is just ridiculous. This is insane. But they did it. They bowed. So just like today, millions, millions in the world gripped by fear and peer pressure and delusions, deceptions, bow to the gods of this world, worshiping philosophies and theories of the world. Many of them sincerely, just sincerely deceived. Many out of fear. You can see that in the news. Pressure of fear. Everybody's doing it. So they're on the plane among those many thousands of people that were Kneeling to that idol, there were three, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, a little island of truth, a little island of light, and standing there while everybody else was bowing. It was a pretty bright light. Right there in the middle of the darkness. No, we will not bow. There, there was a calm, too, in the storm. They were calm. In the face of the furious and shouting, probably screaming Nebuchadnezzar. And they were fearful of that fiery furnace. No, we won't bow. We can't bow. They believed in the true God. They believed in an engaged God who loved and cared for them, that was watching over them, watching out for them. They believed that he was a rewarder of those who seek Him and serve Him and choose His way. Whatever the outcome of this was going to be, they believed there were blessings and rewards on the other side. And they worshipped in spirit and in truth. Not necessarily like a New Testament believer, but it was in spirit and in truth. The reality of a real God and his righteous standard, thou shalt have no other gods before me. Psalm 24, 4. Those who can come to the presence of God have not lifted up his soul to an idol. They had chosen truth. They could stand. They had the strength of God. They stood unbound. And they survived the furnace. And they would have survived the furnace even if they would have been burned to a crisp. On the other side, 
But there was with them a fourth man like unto the Son of God. So, true worship bears fruit. It involves obedience, obedient action as part of worship. In John 15, as the Father loved me, I also have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, verse 10, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. In verse 14, you are my friends if you do whatever I command you. And this obedience of two worshippers is a glad surrender. You know, often, most uh, in school, you hear the word surrender, and I think about history and wars and victories and defeats. And I remember pictures of uh, a string of prisoners of war, defeated, sullen, their arms taken away of their guns and weapons, and forced to march off the prison camp. And sometimes they were, I remember one picture of uh, of men connected by a rope, uh, hand side, and then rope going to the next guy, and hand side, and going to the next behind him, marching off to prison. But this surrender is to be, is, in the heart of a worshiper, a glad surrender to God. Gladly, with joy. And His commandments are not grievous. We love Him. You are my friends. If you do whatever I command you. And they love others. Love God first. Love our neighbors. And in James 1, verse 27, Pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this to visit orphans and widows in their trouble, and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. So, true worship uh, means action, involves action. I think of Cornelius, the centurion, in Acts 10. He was devout, he feared God. And it says in verse 2 that he gave alms generously and prayed to God always. And he was visited by an angel who said, Your alms and prayers are noticed and remembered by God. Send men to Joppa to get Simon Peter, and he'll tell you what to do. So he did that. He sent two servants. And I noticed he sat along with the two servants a devout soldier. So, you know, I wonder how that worked, whether it was Cornelius, Cornelius' testimony that uh, blessed his soldier and helped him see the light and truth and made him a believer in God. But when Peter arrived at Cornelius' house the following evening, Cornelius was waiting with many family and friends. The house is full. And Peter told them, you know, it's um, it's not lawful for a Jewish man to keep 
company with the Gentile, but God told me to come. So what do you want? And Cornelius told him the story and how that angel had come to him and everything and how he had sent for Peter. And now, he said, we're all present before God to hear all things commanded you by God. And Peter said, I now understand that God is impartial. But in every nation, whoever fears Him and works righteousness is accepted by Him. By him. Everyone who believes that He is and that He is a rewarder of them that diligently seek Him. Everyone who worships Him in spirit and in truth. Not just the head acknowledgement, but in life, in action. And Peter preached Christ, the Savior of the world. And while Peter was speaking, the Holy Spirit fell on all those who heard. And it, it was obvious by that that they accepted, embraced what Peter taught them. And it was clear that God clearly accepted them and their work. And the good deeds done by Cornelius, I want us especially to notice Peter, were part of his work, part of his life of devotion. And the starting place was a true faith in a real God that moved into action. Uh, we could go to other scriptures. I want to just uh, I'll point to uh, one is Matthew 10, where in verse 40 he says, He who receives you receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. He who receives a prophet in the name of a prophet shall receive a prophet's reward. Getting down to verse 42, and whoever gives one of these little ones only a cup of cold water in the name of a disciple, assuredly, I say to you, he shall by no means lose his reward. Servant as part of worship, acceptable worship. And my understanding here would be that the link is, he who receives you receives me, in verse 40. So when we serve others for love of Jesus, motivated by love, as part of our worship, God rewards and blesses. However, not all acts of service are done out of love for God, out of a heart of worship for God. In, Matthew, in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 7, Jesus said, verse 20, Therefore, by their fruit, you will know them. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. And many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name and cast out demons in your name and done many wonders in your name? And 
then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. They were going through the forms. Maybe it even made them feel good. And sort of stabbed their consciences. But they weren't starting with a faith in God, who is and is the rewarder of them that diligently seek Him. They were not worshiping Him in spirit and in truth, the reality of who God is and His righteous standard. And we could look at Matthew 25, verses 31 through 46, where Jesus said there were described two groups of people, and both of them had the same question. When did we see you hungry and naked and in need in prison and so forth? One group did not help those people, and the other group did help those people. And Jesus said, those people helped him, served him. Their deeds were righteous. They were part of a life of worship. And we could talk about this life of worship also being uh, uh, and surrender being not only to the holy standards of God, but um, a surrender to circumstances that the sovereign God allows for our chasing and purifying and for the testimony, for a testimony to others. Think about the grief of Job or Jeremiah. Think about the struggles and the despairing times of David and how he responded. You can read that in the Psalms. And think of Paul and Silas singing joyfully while they suffered in prison in the night in Philippi, surrendered to the circumstances they were in that God had allowed. And all of these, they worshipped. And they found um, a shelter, a security, a strength, and a peace in the love of God, the Father. And we can too. Do we believe that God loves us? Do we believe that He will continue the good work that He has begun in us until the end? Do we believe that He will fill our hunger and thirst for righteousness? Do you believe that when you ask, you will receive? That when you seek, you will find? And that when you knock, it will be open to you? Do you believe that God will reveal to you what God has prepared for them that love Him for Corinthians? Verse 9. I'd like to close by looking at Jude, the one chapter of Jude, and noticing the several verses there. Turn there, if you will. Uh, I'd like to start at verse 20. 
Jude and verse 20. Uh, the, these verses would make uh, a message themselves, but I uh, just want to notice them here in, in closing. But you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. So, I see here the, uh, the, uh, the Christian, the true believer, and his effort in seeking and following and living a life of worship. And notice uh, the participles there in verse 20, building, praying, and then verse 21, looking. But it says, keep yourselves in the love of God. And um, one interpretation of this, which I think is probably right, is that in our building and in our praying and in our looking for the mercy of God, that we keep ourselves in the love of God. We keep ourselves acceptable. It's an acceptable worship, and it um, it brings us into the presence of God. Keep yourselves in the love of God and the communion of the heavenly Father. And then it is there that we jump to verse twenty-four and five, that closing doxology where we see the engaged Heavenly Father, now to Him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of His glory with exceeding joy to God our Savior, who alone is wise in glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. Amen. So we see there the Father and the blessing of the Father, who uh, is a rewarder of them that diligently seek Him in faith, believing that He is a God of love, that He is a heavenly Father, and that we worship Him in spirit and in truth, and the reality of who he is and what he what his will is for us. May we be rewarded as we seek him.